It's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. It's always good to be here. Absolutely. As we look at the topics on the agenda, there's been a recent report for 2021 BC Corrections. Who is provincially in jail and why? Yeah, I must say, they are very good at keeping statistics as to who's in jail. Well, if they didn't uh, know how better. many were there, I'd be worried. <laughs> yes, one would hope. <laughs> that makes that uh, morning count difficult if you don't know what you're beginning with. <laughs> exactly. So the the thing to, to start with is in Canada, we've got divided responsibility for running jails, right? Mm. The uh, We have uh, federal penitentiaries, which would are run by Canada federally, that are responsible for people who are adults serving sentences of two years or more. And then provincially is basically everything else, so like youth, people on remand that have been detained waiting for their trial, or people who are, uh, ser- are uh, serving a sentence of less than two years. Um, and so one of the interesting stats there, I think in the context of uh, whether people are being held in custody or released waiting for their trial, which has been a topical thing in Victoria lately, um, is the interesting stat about what percentage of people who are in provincial jails are there waiting for their trial, like not convicted of anything, versus people who have been convicted and who are serving a sentence. And the breakdown in the report I thought was interesting. It is 63% of the people who are in provincial jails are there on remand. That is to say, people who have been denied bail and who are being held in custody waiting for their trial, not convicted of anything. Only 36% of the people who are there are serving a sentence. Uh, And there's 1% who are there on Canada border services matters, like immigration matters, people that get arrested at the airport. Um, And so... The other thing which is interesting, and Stats Canada keeps very good records on it, that trend towards more and more people who are in jail being there on remand has been a growing trend over the last decade. Hmm. If you go all the way back to like 2005, 2006, it was about even the number of people who were on remand as opposed to serving sentences provincially. And essentially, it's just gone up and up as we keep more people in uh, custody and fewer people serving sentences. Hmm. The other very interesting stat that I was able to locate was the stat statistic on what does that cost us? Um, and the average cost per day to keep somebody in a provincial jail is $259. Hmm. That's a little less than what it costs to keep somebody in a federal penitentiary, which is $318. That because they would be higher security sometimes, or they might have a bit more programming. So provincially, $259 a day. So what does that translate to? That's about $94,000, a bit $94,000 and change per year, per person that you keep in a provincial jail. Uh, And to provide some context for that, um, in 2019, the average number of people in Canada who were on remand, that is to say not convicted of anything, just in jail waiting for their trial, Uh was 14,778, meaning that we're spending about $3.8 million per day keeping people on remand. Uh, And on a monthly basis, this would be another way to think about it, keeping somebody in a provincial jail, so you detain them waiting for their trial, Mm. will cost you, will cost the public $7,770 per month. Okay, so just Mm. think about that. Mm -hmm. So 
when you were, and I think it's important to think about it in the context of what would it cost to provide services that might avoid the person being uh, in prison, right? Uh, because when you're spending seven thousand seven hundred and seventy dollars per month keeping somebody in a provincial correctional center waiting for their trial, that provides some context for what would it cost to provide for example, mental health or drug treatment services for the person so that they don't wind up in uh, jail waiting for their trial. Uh, And when you see how much we spend jailing people, it makes some of those other expenses suddenly seem a whole lot more reasonable. Hmm. Uh, And the other interesting stats in that provincial uh, corrections report were the percentage of prisoners uh, who have either a mental health or a substance abuse disorder. And that percentage is 69%. So the overwhelming majority of people who are in provincial jails Mm -hmm. are there. They have mental health and substance abuse disorders, one of the two. Mm -hmm. 42% have both. (laughs) And this is another interesting stat. Mm -hmm. 35% of the people who are in provincial jails are Indigenous. Yes. In comparison to about 6% of the total population. They're also overwhelmingly male. If you look at the percentage of people who are like who's going to jail, provincially yes. 85% of them are male, and federally it's 93% are male. Huh. So we are putting overwhelmingly males uh, who are completely disproportionately indigenous uh, in prison uh, at a very significant cost. And so, you know, we've had this discussion about, you know, what do you do when you've got sort of this social disorder type of offenses that we're seeing? Yeah. What, uh, what does increasing frequency in like downtown Victoria? Yeah. So what does compulsory for, mental health treatment cost? Is it more than two hundred and fifty dollars a day? I'd be hard pressed to imagine it would cost that. Right. If mm-hmm. somebody said to you, I'll give you seven thousand seven hundred and seventy dollars. Do you think you can come up with a residential treatment program? I rather suspect you wouldn't have much difficulty at all. Hiring a doctor right? for a month? Well, I don't think you need a one-on-one doctor for a month. But if I told you you've got a budget of $7,700 and you've got a, a, an issue with a drug addiction and I mm-hmm. suggested you go and find yourself a residential treatment facility, I rather suspect you'd be able to do so for something in the order of $7,000 plus per month. Hmm. Because that's what we're spending to put somebody in prison. Hmm. And so when we're dealing with the sort of social disorder type offenses that we're seeing, people who are, you know, mentally ill and on drugs smashing windows, or people who are breaking into cars and stealing tools from construction sites to feed their drug addiction, right? Mm. Those are completely irritating and unacceptable behaviors, right, which impact the business community, everyone at large. They have a real impact. But... If the approach is put somebody in uh, jail for a few months at a cost of, you know, $7,700 per month and then have them pop out with the same uh, sort of difficulties, I'm not sure we've got great value for money there. Hmm. Um, And so those are the figures that people need to keep in mind when we're having discussions about things like, should we provide residential drug treatment for people? Should we provide beds for people who want treatment? You know, we can move on to should we force people into treatment? Yeah, because that's the other thing. Have the treatment. Yeah. I, and I think, right. and I think my my question about the two hundred and fifty nine dollars a day, um, the compulsory element was assumed, and I should have specified that, but I did not, unfortunately. Sure, but I guess I'm saying, I mean, you could put somebody up at probably the Empress for two hundred and fifty nine dollars a day, right? It's not a small amount of money, mm. uh, and so 
when we are considering what do we do with people who are on the street with mental illness and drug addiction who are repeatedly committing property crimes, for example, mm, right? Yeah. Um, the cost of providing intensive intervention, like in Victoria, we've had that with some success, uh, but it's expensive, right? We've had these programs that are like these assertive community treatment programs where you'd have a police officer and a mental health worker and so on do things like show up and knock on a person's door each day, hello. Yeah, each one has 80 clients. Medication? Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's not cheap, but remember that figure when you're thinking about the alternative. Yeah. Um, and so if you're able to uh, engage with people in a way that prevents them from uh, engaging in that sort of criminal conduct that eventually winds them up in jail, um, you're going to, in addition to saving a lot of uh, social disorder and a lot of unhappy people with their tools and coins stolen and windows broken, uh-huh. you may also produce a financial savings because that is a lot of money. Yeah. And you can do a whole lot of uh, intervention uh, for seven or $8,000 a month, right? Um, and so I just think it's important that people know we have a lot of people who are being held in jail uh, who are on remand. It uh-huh. makes up about two-thirds of the total people in jail. We're spending a tremendous amount of money doing that. Um, and the people who are in jail, it's important to know what the profile is, which is overwhelmingly, 69%, mental health or substance abuse disorder, right? That's the population. Uh, and so it's in that context, I think we need to consider other interventions, right? Like uh, drug treatment or uh, mental health treatment. And Perhaps we do need to look at, once we have those facilities, because there's no point talking about being able to order somebody to go to a non-existent place. But if we could have the facilities, uh, we may wind up saving ourselves a lot of money as a community because the alternative is uh, not only unacceptable from a public disorder crime perspective, but it is incredibly expensive. So I think it's really important people know who's there, who's in prison, uh, and what is that all costing us? Yeah, I guess I'm just um, thinking out loud here in terms of the cost, because if it was cheaper, you then government would take that cost-cutting measure. But I guess it's initial construction costs, capital costs, as well as setting up the system that would, uh, over time, yes, we'd save money, but it would probably take uh, quite some time for that or those savings to be realized. The other issue is the compulsory element. You know, we could have a beautiful villa-style uh, rehab facility up on the Saanich Peninsula with a view of the Gulf Islands and everything's great. But if the person doesn't want to be there and they're still downtown smashing windows, even though we've paid for their nice rehab, that sort of defeats the point. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's reasonable reasonable scope for a debate uh, in terms of uh, requiring people to attend treatment. Yes. And if we were if we were doing it in a way that wasn't designed to be punitive, it was designed to be, look, you've got a mental disorder, you've got a drug addiction, right? You're living on the street. We're yes. going to intervene to try to um, help you with those things and mm-hmm. in the process assist others. I think there would be pretty broad support for that. But at the moment, the issue is not um, should we be forcing people into the treatment facility. We need the treatment facility. Yeah, we don't have it right? yet. Yeah, it's jail or but nothing. And, yeah, okay. Uh, and I guess the other part of it is, right, the explanation or discussion we've just had requires some statistics, five or ten minutes of looking at the math, and yeah. looking at who's in prison, whereas from a political perspective, it's a lot easier to say lock them up. Right? Well, when, when they're locked up, irritating. they don't hurt anybody. So, well, for like sure. I don't have to worry about a person who's locked up coming and hurting me, Michael. I don't. It's it's a weight off my mind, regardless of any other factor. 
Well, not for long, though. I know. And that's, long, long, I know. How long, I know. How long do you plan to lock up the mentally ill drug addict? I don't know. Right. Hopefully they'll be better when they get out. And if not, I don't really have a plan. Right. That's the thing. They're going to pop back out. And here's the overall cost. In Canada, 2018-2019, uh, we spent $2.2 billion uh, on correctional services, jails, keeping people in prison. Yeah. So just think about that, right? When you say, look, let's uh, you know hold the uh, shoplifter uh, in jail for you know three or four months uh, so they can have a trial. Mm. Well, you've just spent yourself there, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Well, what is that about to? Seventy-seven hundred. Let's multiply that by four. That's what you've just spent holding the person in jail. Might sound satisfying, but you've just spent a heck of a lot of money, and you probably out the other end uh, just have a, a person who still has a uh, mental illness and a drug addiction. Uh, and, uh, you know, our wallets are all collectively lighter to the tune of whatever that is, $30,000. So mm-hmm. we should uh, think about the math and the cost when we are considering the cost of other interventions uh, that might be a uh, alternative to that. Mm-hmm. Let's take a quick break. Legally Speaking will continue in just a moment on CFAX 1070. Returning to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Next on the agenda, 12-year-old, it says here, ordered returned from Pakistan to British Columbia. What's happening here? Well, or the uh, the reverse. This is a, a case that deals with a thorny topic, which is the issue of how are we to deal with uh, uh, decisions made by courts in other countries with respect to uh, parenting and custody. Um, and the couple here is an accomplished couple. They were uh, they are um, uh, dual citizens of Pakistan and Canada. Uh, who've worked internationally and uh, met uh, in Toronto a number of years ago. Uh, they got married. They had a son. The son's now 12. Uh, the uh, wife and the relationship uh, took off in 2013, left her husband claiming that he was abusive, went to Pakistan and obtained there a divorce. Uh, and so ensued protracted litigation in Pakistan concerning the son. Uh, and who the son was going to live with and uh, who would get access uh, to the child. Um, And then uh, after many years of litigation there, as COVID began to um, uh, take off, the mother uh, got on a repatriation flight with her son, contrary to a court order from Pakistan, uh, and came back to Canada. Uh, The uh, father was delayed somewhat as he got COVID uh, and became extremely ill for a number of months, Uh, But then eventually what occurred is this case wound up uh, in court in British Columbia with the father uh, saying, look, there was a court order, a consent order from the court in Pakistan, uh, providing that the mother shouldn't have taken the child out of Pakistan uh, and that he was to have um, access to the child there. The mother's retort to that in court amounted to uh, effectively that the court process in Pakistan Uh, involved an application of Sharia law, uh, and she said she she felt intimidated into entering into the uh, consent order based on uh, comments made by the uh, judge. Um, She alleged uh, that the uh, provisions of Sharia law would uh, uh, dictate that a male child over the age of seven uh, would be uh, given to the father, and the father would have exclusive custody. And so she argued that the the law uh, here shouldn't recognize uh, this order from the court in Pakistan. Um, and 
this is run up against a, uh, a general provision that we have in our Family Law Act that deals with the uh, extra-provincial matters respecting parenting arrangements. And the law is intended to prevent people from taking children and fleeing to other jurisdictions and sort of trying again, for example, right? Mm -hmm. The general proposition would be you want to recognize uh, court orders that are made and want to discourage people from uh, fleeing across borders with children, which is a laudable objective. Um, And one of the principles in the Family Law Act dealing with the extra-provincial parenting uh, orders made by other courts uh, is the idea that you shouldn't allow issues to be relitigated, and a court here, like the court in British Columbia that decided this case, is not supposed to be making findings of fact on disputed matters, other than what would be ne- necessary to determine, you know, what was the proper jurisdiction uh, to have made the order in the first place. Trying to prevent people from, for example, engaging in litigation, let's say in Washington State, losing. <laughs> fleeing to British Columbia and saying, well, let me just try again up here, right? We don't want that happening. Uh, But those principles become much trickier uh, from a public policy perspective when we're trying to analyze, um, you know, what kind of a decision exactly is coming out of the uh, superior court in Pakistan, uh, where you have, for example, the mother here claiming that this was just some application of Sharia law and not taking into account what the best interests of the uh, child uh, would be. Uh, The mother here was unsuccessful, ultimately, in her effort to resist uh, the father's application to have the child sent back to Pakistan in accordance with the order from the court in Pakistan. Uh, And part of that was that the uh, judge hearing the case in British Columbia found that the uh, mother had failed to demonstrate some of the things that she was claiming. Uh, For example, the mother claimed that the presiding judge in Pakistan uh, had uh, said misogynistic things from the bench, made her feel demeaned, and caused her to feel that if she didn't agree to the order, she would lose the child altogether. But she failed to produce a transcript of the hearing and oh. failed to produce any affidavit from her lawyer who was helping her at the time. Oh. So the judge didn't accept that. Um, and uh, as well, she said, look, you know, what was going on there was this application of Sharia law, not looking at what the child's best interests would be. Uh, and uh, her argument was, as a matter of public policy, uh, the BC court shouldn't recognize this order from the court in Pakistan. The judge here did did not accept that argument either, and one of the things the judge here pointed to was the fact that despite this prolonged, protracted litigation which went on in Pakistan from 2013 to 2018, um, the court did not simply award custody of the child to the father, which is what she suggested would happen on a strict application of Sharia law in Pakistan, she was saying, look, the court would just do this. He's a male. He's over seven. To the father you go. Hmm. Uh, and the court here looked at the history of it and said, well, that's not indeed what the court in Pakistan did. Uh, the court in Pakistan allowed her to maintain uh, principal responsibility for the child with access to the father. And so the court listened to expert evidence about the nature of uh, the court process in Pakistan 
but ultimately came to the conclusion that the uh, order from the court of Pakistan ought to be recognized. Uh, and despite the mother's protestations that the uh, process was unfair or that she was uh, pressured into uh, uh, agreeing to that court order from there and her protestations that this was not in the child's best interest, uh, the uh, court uh, did what would be contemplated uh, by the Family Law Act and made a determination that indeed Pakistan was the appropriate forum to have that litigation because that's where the child was living at the time. Uh, and so uh, the British Columbia court uh, recognized the uh, order from the court of Pakistan. And the result of that um, is that the child will be returned to Pakistan uh, despite the mother's uh, claims uh, that she was abused or that the uh, court process was not a fair one there. So a difficult case. Yeah. Uh, and I think something people should be aware of uh, because there really are some competing principles there, mm-hmm. right, in terms of recognizing orders made in other places, not wanting to encourage people to be fleeing with children uh, or trying again. But on the other hand, you know, we need to be, you know, what degree of certainty do you have that uh, decisions from uh, other jurisdictions are genuinely being made, for example, bearing in mind what the child's best interests are. Fascinating topics. Michael, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.